0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
1: McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault, this time with a follow-up from last Saturday's vault episode. This is going to be our episode on the split-brain experiments, part two. If you listened last Saturday, you know what's in store. So uh, I guess let's jump right in.
0: With every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual... I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. That man is not truly one, but truly two.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of our two-part exploration of uh, hemispheric lateralization and especially the split brain experiments of Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga uh, starting in the 1960s. Now, if you haven't heard the last episode, you should really go check that out first. That's
0: going to lay all the groundwork for what we're talking about today. Right. And it will also explain why we kicked off this episode and the last episode with a reading from Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll. And Mister Hyde from eighteen eighty six.
1: Short version is Robert Louis Stevenson thought he had another dude in there.
0: What did he call him? The other guy? The man inside me? By uh, <laughs> I know that was a different author. Uh, no, it was uh, it was me and the yeah the, that other fellow. That other fellow, yeah.
1: So in the last episode, we discussed. Uh 20th century research on a small group, uh, which was a small subset of the total group of maybe 50 to 100 or maybe a little more than 100 people who have ever received a surgical intervention called a corpus callosotomy, which is a severing of the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum you can kind of think of as the high-speed fiber optic cable that connects the two hemispheres of the brain together. Now, the surgery was originally intended as a kind of last resort treatment for people People who had terrible epileptic seizures. There are so few of these patients because now we generally have better, safer ways of treating epilepsy without such a radical surgery.
0: Right. Though, though these individuals are still around. uh, Yes. Certainly, in the last episode, we mentioned that Pinto study that looked at a couple of them in 2017, and it's very possible that we have listeners out there uh, who have received this surgery as well. And obviously, we would love to hear from you if there's anything you would like to share. Oh, yeah, please.
1: If you have a split brain, email us immediately. And in fact, you you mentioned the more recent research. We're going to look at some of that research in today's episode. Uh, But what neuroscientists learned in the 20th century from this small group of patients was truly remarkable. Beginning in the 1960s and continuing up until recent years, these split brain patients have been the subject of some of the most interesting research ever on the nature of the brain, the mind, and the self. So last time we talked about the original work of, uh, like, Sperry and Gazzaniga, who discovered many fascinating things about how it's possible for one half of the brain to not know what the other half is thinking, doing, or seeing. This time, we want to follow up on the subject, explore some more recent studies, and ask questions about what these split brain studies mean for our lives. And to start off, I wanted to mention an anecdote I came across from the neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran that he has brought up in some of his public talks and work. Uh, He tells a story of working with one particular split brain patient who had been trained to respond to questions with his right hemisphere. Now, you'll remember from our last episode that uh, in the case of most patients, the right hemisphere of the brain cannot speak. Uh, It might have some very rudimentary language comprehension, but generally, language and especially the production of speech is dominated by areas of the left hemisphere. So if you're dealing with the right hemisphere of a split-brain patient and you show something only to their left visual field, which connects to the right hemisphere... And you ask them about it, what often happens is that, for instance, they will not be able to say the thing you have showed them in their right brain or even explain it in words, uh, but they will be able to draw the image with their left hand. Now, in the case of Ramachandran's story, he had trained a patient in a lab at Caltech to answer questions posed directly to his right hemisphere only by pointing with his left hand to response boxes, indicating yes, no, I don't know. Now, of course, asking these questions directly to the left hemisphere is a lot easier because it just processes language normally and you can just ask. Uh, but he trained the right hemisphere to respond as well. So the patient was perfectly capable of answering questions like this with either hemisphere. Are you on the moon right now? Patient says no. Are you at Caltech? Patient says yes. But Ramachandran then asked the right hemisphere, "Do you believe in God?" And it says yes. And he then asked the left hemisphere, the language dominant hemisphere, "Do you believe in God?" And it says no. Oh wow! This is yet another one that immediately when I heard the story, the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I feel the I, I feel the the goosebumps of of uh, counterintuition running through me. Yeah, because I feel like for
0: the for the most part, I feel like a lot of us want to feel like we have a definitive answer to that question and and answers (laughs) like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm probably a, a little weirder in that I, I, and I imagine a lot of our listeners are like this as well. Where someone asks you questions like this, and you can be a lot more wishy washy and say, "Well, I don't know. It depends." You know, mm-hmm. uh, yes and no. I, 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 feel like most of us, if not all of us, you know, we can have we can have contra- contrary ideas in our mind. We can have conflicting notions that are that are vying for dominance. I Which mean, me are you asking? Yeah, are you <laughs> asking Jekyll or are you asking Hyde? You know, Hyde. He, uh, you know, he's he's not much of a church goer, but. <laughs> but Jekyll, he's there every Sunday.
1: Yeah, but he's only there to ultimately work his way up the chain and usurp the creator. <laughs> I suppose. Now, Ramachandran jokingly asks a theological question about this. He says, you know, assume the old dogma that people who have faith in God go to heaven and people who don't go to hell. What happens when the split brain patient dies? Mm-hmm. That's a good laugh line. But... I think this question is actually more profound than it seems at first because we may not be divine judges casting people into heaven or hell, but we are judges. We judge and evaluate and characterize people all the time, every day, as if they are some sort of essential whole. We pick out what we believe to be the salient characteristics that define a person, like this is their character. And and now we know who they are. This is their mind. This is the person there might be no way to get people to live and behave other than this. I mean, it might just be an inextricable part of our, our personalities that we have to judge people as essential holes in this way. But I think this research should cause us to wonder about our folk beliefs about the nature of the mind and the brain and what it means to be a person.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, just to t- talk about judgment, uh, we we have some severe problems with, uh, with with dealing with the idea that that. that that there is not a single person over a, a length of time. Yeah. I mean I, I mean obviously you have people serving prison sentences for crimes that an earlier iteration of themselves committed. What do they say? I'm a different person now. And and it is true. <laughs> we yeah. are all different people than than we once were. Uh, but, but you might in some ways also be a different person than you were a couple of seconds ago. Right. Or it can be kind of a juggling back and forth. You know, I'm a different person in the morning versus uh, the afternoon. I mean, I, I truly feel that.
1: Well, I mean, when it comes to questions like this, like the the theological question, the fact is most people, I think, are probably filled with all kinds of doubts concerning whatever their beliefs about religion are. Whether you believe in God or not, either way, you probably sometimes wonder if you're wrong.
0: Or you should. That's always a great exercise (laughs) about anything in life. Yeah. Think about the possibility that you're wrong.
1: (laughs) No matter what it is. Exactly. Uh, But our everyday experience, of course, is that these varying states of doubt, they get somehow synthesized right? You roll it all up together. You say, even though whichever way I am, whether I believe in God or not, I ultimately have one way of answering that question. Most people are like this when you, I mean, you might not be this way, Robert, but a lot, most people would say, I have an answer.
0: Well, at the end of the day, or even just minute to minute, you, your brain has to tell a story about who you are, right? And for that to make sense, there still has to be a sentence Uh, There still has to be a a story, some sort of continuation. And even if, you know, my story is a little more, um, uh, you know, meandering, it's still a story. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. You're still narrativizing yourself.
1: You're Mm -hmm. composing a synthetic picture of who I am. And for you, I think that picture includes more ambiguity than a lot of people are comfortable with. But either way, no matter what, you're telling a story about yourself. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and so despite your doubts, either way, you think of yourself as one whole, unified, unified person. You either believe in God or you don't, uh, or you identify. You have some narrative that's in between. You say I'm an agnostic or whatever. But this is just one case of a generally fascinating phenomenon. To ponder, what if by asking parts of our brain separately, we would think different things about all kinds of stuff, have different feelings, make different judgments, make different moral judgments, be different people? Is any one aspect of your brain more truly authentically you than another aspect of your brain? I mean, they're both in your head, right? Mm -hmm. So today, this is sort of what we wanted to focus on to talk about some of these types of takeaways from split brain experiments and more recent research on split brain patients. So one really fascinating area of research we can look at is the idea of moral judgments. Robert, can I pose you a scenario and see what you think?
0: Yes, go ahead. Uh, uh, bandersnatch me here. Okay.
1: Oh, I, yeah. You're taunting me with it every day. <laughs> I still haven't seen it yet, but I will. Okay, here's a scenario. Grace and her friend are taking a tour of a chemical plant. Okay. Grace goes over to the coffee machine to pour some coffee. Grace's friend asks if Grace will put some sugar in hers, and there is a white powder in a container next to the coffee machine. The white powder is a very toxic substance left behind by a scientist and deadly when ingested. The container, however, is labeled sugar, so Grace believes that the white powder is regular sugar. Grace puts this white powder in her friend's coffee. Her friend drinks the coffee and dies. Now, the question is, is what Grace did morally
0: acceptable or not? Um, Given this scenario, I mean, it seems morally acceptable because she didn't know it was toxic. It was labeled sugar. Yeah. She was – and she was uh, following a request. Yeah. So you are
1: answering the question the way almost all adults tend to answer these Mm -hmm. questions, that what matters is the intention of the person doing the action. Uh, So let me pose it another way. Same scenario. Grace and her friend are at a coffee. uh, They're getting coffee at the chemical plant. Now it turns out that the white powder in the container is just sugar, and it's fine, but it is labeled toxic. So Grace believes that the white powder is a toxic substance, but she's wrong. She puts it in her friend's coffee. It's actually just sugar. Her friend drinks it. Is what what Grace did morally acceptable? Well, I would say it is forbidden because she attempted to poison a friend. Exactly right. So yeah, this is how I would answer as well. This is how almost all adults tend to answer these questions. The fact is that in general, adults tend to think – that intentions are highly morally relevant. So they usually say that a person who accidentally poisons a friend of theirs with no intent to harm them is not morally blameworthy. But somebody who intends to poison a friend uh, even if they fail at doing so is morally blameworthy. And of course like, you know, there are many aspects that, that you see this uh, put into practice around the world in like legal and justice systems. A person is punished a lot more for trying to hurt someone on purpose than for hurting them by accident. Though right. often yeah. So, sometimes they are still held responsible for hurting somebody by Yeah, some by sort accident. of
0: gross negligence situation, you know?
1: Uh, and that's like a, a middle category, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you didn't mean to hurt somebody but you were doing something really reckless and it hurt them, that's sort of like a middle culpability level.
0: Right. Like if you stored the toxic white powder next to the uh, the, the sugar and uh, she just didn't look closely enough. Like, yeah. You really should – you know that you that this place has, has sugar and toxic poison – uh, you should you should know to check which one you're scoop getting lumps out of. Right. But we
1: wouldn't think that Grace should have expected there to be poison right next to the coffee machine.
0: Right. And on the other hand, Grace uh, – you can't expect Grace to just expect people to be po- trying to poison her all the time. Like there, there, there are certain cultural expectations in place here. Exactly.
1: But the weird thing is not everyone answers scenarios this way. For example, previous research including by the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget uh, and others later – has found that young children, and Piaget found this was up to about the age of nine or ten, tend to attribute moral guilt and deservingness of punishment in exactly the opposite way. Hmm. They assign guilt based on the objective consequences of the action rather than to the knowledge or intentions of the agent, meaning that many young children will suggest that if Grace means to put sugar in her friend's coffee but accidentally poisons her friend, she is naughty, but if she tries to poison her friend and the poison doesn't work,
0: she's fine. Well, that sounds totally believable. I mean, I, I now that it's pointed out like that, you know, I can see, I can see various aspects of that popping up in just raising a child. You know. Yeah. Where where they're gonna they're kind of gonna jump to this conclusion you know certainly not with poisoning but with just sort of the everyday uh, minutia that fills your life well
1: they don't reason this way every time mm-hmm. like sometimes intention seems salient to them mm-hmm. but generally the rule is after about age ten n- almost nobody ever thinks that accidentally harming someone is worse than intending to
0: harm them and not harm and failing. Mm. Yeah, but this I mean, I've seen this with my son, though, where like he'll do something accidentally, mm-hmm. and then he's really hard on himself for having. For, for, quote, being bad or having, you know, done something bad and you have to reassure him, you know, like, this was, you know, it was an accident, buddy. It, you know, it, it's all cool. Well, this is
1: a fascinating phenomenon on its own. I mean, mm-hmm. before we even get to how this applies to the split brain experiments, uh, for example, you know, I, I went back I was like, is this really true? So I was reading some of Piaget's work on this question uh, from a book of his. And so here's one of the scenarios he describes when interviewing young children. Okay, the first one is uh, uh, this, uh, about this little boy named John, Robert Do you want to read about John? Sure.
0: A little boy who is called John is in his room. He is called to dinner. He goes into the dining room. But behind the door, there was a chair. And on the chair, there was a tray with 15 cups on it. John couldn't have known that there was all this behind the door. He goes in, the door knocks against the tray, bang, go the 15 cups, and they all get broken. All right, here's the
1: other scenario. Once there was a little boy whose name was Henry. One day when his mother was out, he tried to get some jam out of the cupboard. He climbed up onto a chair and stretched out his arm, but the jam was too high up, and he couldn't reach it and have any. But while he was trying to get it, he knocked over a cup. The cup fell down and broke.
0: Ah, so, yeah, we have a situation where uh, John was just going about normal everyday house stuff. He and didn't know where some no stuff idea. was. Yeah. yeah. And it, stuff got broken. But Henry is trying to do something he shouldn't. Yeah. And then accidentally breaks something.
1: But here uh, then Piaget includes a little uh, transcript of a dialogue with a six-year-old boy named Gio about these stories. Robert, do you want to be Gio?
0: I'll, I'll be the child, yes. Okay. <laughs> have you understood these stories? Yes. What did the first boy do? He broke 11 cups. (laughs) And the second one? He broke a cup by moving roughly. Why did the first one break the cups? Because the door knocked them. And the second? He was clumsy. When he was getting the jam, the cup fell down.
1: How did Gio become Richard (laughs) O'Brien? Okay, no, sorry, going on. Is one of the boys naughtier than the other?
0: The first is because he knocked over 12 cups. If you were the daddy, which one would you punish most? The one who broke 12 cups. Why did he break them? The door shut too hard and knocked them. He didn't do it on purpose. And why did the other boy break a cup? He wanted to get the jam. He moved too far. The (laughs) cup got broken. Why did he want the jam? Because he was all alone. Because his mother wasn't there. Have you got a brother? No, a little sister.
1: Well, if it was you who had broken the twelve cups when you went into the room, and your little sister had broken the one cup while she was trying to get the jam, which of you would be punished most severely? Me, because I broke more than one cup. Now, Robert. Uh, first of all, I'm going to give a rave review to your creepy <laughs> child voice. That was like a beautiful riffraff French geo. I was from- yeah, I was
0: trying to go for like a Damien child or something, but uh, you know, Richard O'Brien is still uh, pretty good.
1: It's all for you, riffraff.
0: <laughs> but this is illuminating. This shows, uh, th- I mean, this shows how the the six year old is thinking about these two scenarios and, oh. and applying judgment.
1: Yes, almost no adult reasons this way, right? Right. So this, on its own, is fascinating to me. Why this discrepancy in the moral reasoning of children and adults, and what causes the change? You know, Piaget says the change tends to happen somewhere in late childhood. You know, somewhere between like uh, like seven and nine or ten. This change really takes over, and people st- and the children start reasoning about moral intentions and moral knowledge as opposed to just the objective outcomes. Uh, one issue I think that plays into this maturation process and more judgments is, of course, going to be the development of the sophistication of theory of mind. And theory of mind, of course, is the ability to understand that others have independent mental states and imagine what those states are. But this clearly can't be the only factor because most children develop theory of mind by around age five or so, and a significant number of them think outcomes matter more than intentions for guilt until around age nine or so. Hmm. So there must be something else happening also.
0: All right so they're able yeah, they're able to contemplate other mind states, and yet they're still sticking to this uh, the, the, this this harsh form of judgment,
1: yeah. And again, to be clear, not in every case because sometimes children will seem to think intentions matter, but they mm-hmm. clearly they they default to this far more than adults would. Now, there's one reason to think that, of course, theory of mind is important for making a mature moral judgments, the kind adults make based on knowledge and intentions, for the obvious reason that when you make a judgment considering a state of mind, including the knowledge and intentions of the person who broke the cups or put the powder in the coffee or whatever, you need to imagine their state of mind. Like, you have to have that in your brain in order to evaluate whether they were guilty or not. And so in, like, 2008, 2009... Researchers named Leanne Young and Rebecca Sachs use neuroimaging to find evidence that when you try to ascribe beliefs and intentions to other people, essentially when you practice theory of mind and you're thinking about other minds, it involves processes that are lateralized. They're primarily on one side of the brain, specifically in the right temporal parietal junction, or TPJ. And in a 2009 study, Young and Sachs found that Uh, Temporal parietal junction activity in the right hemisphere only appeared when people tried to assess the moral significance of things like accidental harms when you hurt somebody but you didn't mean to. So if I tell you a story about Jeffrey accidentally knocking somebody into the Grand Canyon and then I ask you to think about whether Jeffrey did something morally wrong or not, whatever thinking you use to answer that question will probably involve the TPJ on the right side. But uh-oh – what if the part of your brain that's getting that's interacting with the language that poses this question to you cannot retrieve information from the lateralized TPJ on oh, the right
0: side? Enter the split brain. Yes.
1: So we're going to look at a 2010 study from Neuropsychologia called Abnormal Moral Reasoning in Complete and Partial Callosotomy Patients uh, by Miller, Sennett-Armstrong, Young, King, Paji, Fabri. Polinara and Gazaniga. So the authors begin by looking at the state of affairs we just talked about uh, with the, the, the localization in the right hemisphere of this part of the brain that's used in imagining other minds and making judgments about something like the intentions of somebody in reference to moral guilt. And they write, quote, these findings suggest that patients with disconnected hemispheres would provide abnormal moral judgments on accidental harms and failed attempts to harm since normal judgments in these cases require information about beliefs and intentions from the right brain to reach the judgmental processes in the left brain. So they ran a test. They used six split-brain patients who have had either a partial or total sectioning of the corpus callosum and compared that with 22 normal control subjects. Now verbally, so what they did is verbally out loud conducted interviews posing moral judgment scenarios like the sugar or poison story we talked about with Grace, but also other ones like it. Uh, they, They conducted these interviews verbally, asking the subjects about whether different types of action in the scenario were morally acceptable or not. And remember, of course, which hemisphere of the brain is the one primarily responsible for speech. It's the left. So if you're having a verbal interview with somebody, their left hemisphere is sort of like – it's like the gatekeeper, right, Mm. that will in in most cases be dominating the input and output of the brain you're interacting with since the input and output is all spoken words. So if you have to give your answers in words coming from your left hemisphere and it can't communicate very well with your right hemisphere or at all with your right hemisphere – Uh, which is the home of an important part of the brain that you use to think about the knowledge and intentions of other people, your verbal answers on subjects requiring this kind of knowledge may very well be impaired. And the results, it turned out, supported this hypothesis. The control subjects, the people without split brains, they tended to, to judge just like we did earlier, like they judged based on intentions. Well, did grace mean to harm somebody or not? And that was the mainly salient thing. The split brain patients did so far less consistently, more often judging based purely on outcomes, the way many young children did in Piaget's work. Hmm. And also to supplement their experiment, they tested two of the split-brain patients' ability to detect hypothetical faux pas. For example, a person, quote, telling somebody how much they dislike a bowl while forgetting that the person had given them that bowl as a wedding present. Uh, And of course the idea is that a person who's unable – like if you're unable to give spoken answers involving the theory of mind function localized in the right TPJ, you will find it significantly harder to detect a faux pas, which requires you to think about other minds. And the split-brain difference held true here. Uh, Out of 10 faux pas, they said uh, patient vp successfully detected only six, and patient JW correctly identified only four, whereas control subjects all identified 100% of the faux pas. So when they were given a scenario like that and asked, did something awkward happen? Normal people, they detected every time. Oh, wow. In fact, one of the things that I would say our brains are most highly suited for is detecting social awkwardness and stuff.
0: Right, yeah, and it is interesting to to notice this emerging in in younger children too. You know, mm-hmm. like you see this kind of awareness coming online. You know, where they're able to identify faux pas as opposed to just be like the master of faux, faux pas.
1: <laughs> well, you, do you ever notice? I wonder if like adolescence and teenage years are kind of an era. It's like uh, it's a time when you are almost like hyper aware of social awkwardness. Mm-hmm. Does that ring true to
0: you? Um, to a certain extent, but I don't know. I've run into some teens who, I, I mean, there are a lot of different types of brains out there, but I mean, I've run into some teens that, that definitely have a lot of social awkwardness or, uh, or definitely walk into a lot of faux pas, so I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, just because you are awkward doesn't mean you're not aware
0: of awkwardness. Right. Yeah. Certainly, awkwardness does seem to define that, <laughs> that period in one's life. <laughs> That, would be, that might be something to come back to. I know we've done episodes in the past on the teenage brain and the particular uh, aspects of the teenage brain. Uh, I, w- I wonder if there's, a, if there's a, an entire episode on the science of awkwardness.
1: Hmm. Well, I think we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can discuss this study a little more.
0: All right, we're back.
1: All right, so we've just discussed this study about split-brain patients and moral judgments and found that split-brain patients, at least in this one study, uh, made moral judgments based on outcomes rather than on intentions more like children sometimes do instead of the way that adults normally do. Um, And this is fascinating. Now, of course, we should acknowledge some potential drawbacks of this experiment. Like all split-brain studies, by necessity – It's a small sample, right? You Mm -hmm. know, there aren't that many of these people out there and even a smaller subset of them want to participate in experiments like this. But so it's almost on the scale of anecdote. So you have to be careful about uh, drawing strong conclusions from the results also, there are some other detailed complications in the study, uh, such as questions about why the effect also manifested in partial callosotomy patients uh, when the authors had not expected it to. They thought it would only appear in the full callosotomy patients. And then uh, also about where the exact site of decoding the beliefs of others is located. Maybe it's not exactly the TPJ, but more anterior to it. Uh, so th- that's some peripheral issues. But nevertheless, if we tentatively accept these results, like how fascinating, and, and it leads to all these questions like here's one you know we discussed in the last episode that despite the radical nature of the surgery that cuts the corpus callosum and the amazing neurological anomalies that can arise from it under lab conditions generally most patients and patient families report totally normal functionality no major changes in personality or behavior after the surgery if it's changing their moral reasoning in in this kind of way how could that be possible
0: I mean, yeah, because certainly from your own standpoint, I mean, you were – if your moral compass has changed, then you – I mean, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? But but you're going to be surrounded by other people – who would be able to identify the change, presumably.
1: Yeah, you would think so. I mean, if there is actually a change. So uh, and and also like, yeah, you think that moral judgments sort of go to the heart of, of a person's personality, right? Like that that is your character. That is who you are as a person or at least how you think that. about that subject.
0: Right. You would think there would be anecdotes out there about like, yeah, uh, my uncle had this surgery and then his, like his his political ideology changed afterwards. Yeah. yeah, But something to that effect. But uh, we have not seen that in any reference in any of these studies. So if these results from
1: this 2010 study are sound... What accounts for the discrepancy here? And the authors, uh, they they posit three possible answers. One is, well, maybe there are profound personality changes in split-brain patients that have gone unnoticed or unreported. They don't think this is very likely because, quote, most reports from family members suggest no changes in mental functions or personality. And early studies that thoroughly tested patients pre- and post operatively reported no changes in cognitive functioning. So they feel pretty robustly that these patients in their day-to-day lives are not really changed. Mm. The other possibility is, well, maybe it's just because uh, the judgment tasks here have no relevance to real life. But I mean, we use judgments like this all the time. Like, did somebody mean to do something? That that seems like something that comes up every day.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I, I jokingly brought up Bandersnatch, the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure Black Mirror episode on Netflix uh, earlier. But like, I, I found myself in watching that, like having to make choices about moral choices for the character. Mm-hmm. I found myself very uncomfortable with uh, with choices that that I found uh, morally reprehensible. Mm-hmm. Even though it's just purely, you know, hypothetical, it's just a story. Right. All right, what else do we have? What other possible answers? Well, the third possibility is what the researchers think is
1: probably the case, which is that even though this impairment is manifested in the lab, in reality, it somehow gets compensated for. Mm. Somehow in daily life, other brain regions and functions or alternative processes kick in to counteract whatever is causing people to give these unusual answers in
0: the lab condition. Ah, the brain finds a way. Yes,
1: so what would it be? Uh, Well, what about a version of something, not exactly, but something like the System 1 versus System 2 schema? Oh, of course. No, of course, we can remind people what the system one and system two themes are.
0: Well, it's like basically like the different ways of dealing with the threat of the tiger. There's the, the way of dealing with the tiger by avoiding it and not going to the places where the tiger is. And then there's the way of dealing with the tiger where you have to fight it or flee from it.
1: So I think we'd have the order inverted there. But yeah, so like system two is generally considered to be like slow, deliberate, methodical, logical thinking about how to solve problems. Right. Whereas system one is fast, reactive, intuitive,
0: implicit. Right. Punch the tiger in the nose and run for it.
1: And we need both for life. I mean, uh, System 2 reactions might be uh, less likely to give us erroneous results, but you don't have time to use System 2 thinking on everything. Uh, you know, you, you're trying to get through life. Most of the time, you need to make quick judgments that are not overly cons- – you know, you can't overthink, like, which foot I'm going to put in front of the other right now.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so you've got to be prepared for either tiger, the distance tiger or the uh, the close tiger.
1: And so maybe the idea here is that the right TPJ is somehow necessary for making fast, implicit, system one type decisions about judging more you know the moral valence of an action and imagining theory of mind. But that you can if you can't do that, you can somehow do the same thing. It just takes longer and it's is a more difficult deliberate process that the brain has to go through if it can't rely on this brain region that does does this fast for you normally hmm. The authors write, quote, if the patients do not have access to the fast implicit systems for ascribing beliefs to others, their initial automatic moral judgments might not take into account beliefs of others. But, you know, their slow reason, deliberate thinking system can compensate. It can kick in. Then again, I mean, I wonder how this – if this is the case and we'll discuss this a little more how this wouldn't manifest in normal life because I feel like we use the fast, intuitive system one type process to make morally relevant judgments all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're constantly making sort of unfair moral judgments about things that would not, you know, they're not using the kind of reasoning that you would sit down and deliberate about. Think about how often you get mad at somebody because they do something accidentally. And if you were forced to stop and think about it, you're like, okay, no, they didn't, they didn't mean to do that. There's no reason to morally blame them you just get mad in the moment and you're mm-hmm. just like why are you in my way or why did you
0: do that yeah yeah totally now this uh, you know this like the the other split brain experiments we're looking at though it, it reminds me of say if you're watching a 3d film and you have the glasses on and then you take the glasses off and you 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 see that there is uh, there's there's some sort of uh uh you know there's a lack of unity there. Mm-hmm. or it's like you're you're staring through the stereo view and then you look at the card and you see that it's two images side by side to create uh the united whole like it's it's a glimpse at the duality that that is making the at least you know the sort of the illusion the experience of the whole possible yeah um but 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 then it's it's we we shouldn't fall under the um it, it, we shouldn't then fall into the trap of thinking that it is dual by nature. It's like taking the glasses off and saying, oh, the world is really red. The world is really blue. Well, no, no. The the, the world is the thing that comes together.
1: Yeah, and and the glasses are designed to give you this 3D image the same way that the brain is designed by evolution to have compensating processes, to have one way of doing something or another way of doing something depending on the situational need. And so, of course, I indicated that the authors tend to think this third answer is probably the correct one uh, about the compensating mechanism taking over in real life scenarios, And as evidence, they cite the fact that in the experiment, split brain patients would sometimes spontaneously blurt out a rationalization of an answer that ignored intentions, almost as if after giving the answer out loud that ignored intentions, they realized something was wrong with it so here 's one example: A split brain patient named JW heard a scenario where a waitress thought that serving sesame seeds to a customer would give him a terrible allergic reaction. She thought he was allergic to sesame seeds she tried to, she served him sesame seeds, but it turns out he wasn 't actually allergic. She was wrong about that, and the seeds didn 't hurt him, even though she thought they would. J.W. said the waitress had done nothing wrong. Then he paused for a few moments, then spontaneously blurted out, sesame seeds are tiny little things. They don't hurt nobody. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's almost as if he was searching for a post hoc rationalization of an answer he'd already given, but which began to seem wrong to him as it sank in, you know, given a few more seconds to think Mm -hmm. about it. And the the uh, patient JW alone, they reported spontaneously blurted out rationalizations like this in five of the 24 scenarios, so like more than a fifth. Oh, wow. And again, I just think back to the fact, you know, post-hoc rationalization is a huge part of life. We talked about this in the last episode with the uh, the uh, the rider and the elephant, right? Like how often do we do things that honestly we don't understand why we did them, but we just come up with a story and we even believe that story ourselves as an explanation for why we did it. But you can see clear evidence that that is not the reason.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you end up telling yourself, well, I, I wanted that product. Yes. Or perhaps oh I would, Well, you might even, you might even t- end up telling yourself a story about how you were tricked into buying it. But, but there is some sort of rationalization about the, uh, about the, 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 the movements of the, the beast beneath you. All right. On that note, we're going to take another break, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back.
1: OK, I think we should take a look at another study about moral judgment and uh, the, the division of the brain hemispheres. So this is one from Royal Society Open Science from 2017 called Moral Judgment by the Disconnected Left and Right Cerebral Hemispheres, a Split Brain Investigation. And this is by Steckler, Hamlin, Miller, King, and Kingstone. Uh, and when you get King and Kingstone together, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> So to recap from the last study, uh, we know that lots of parts of the brain are used in making moral judgments, including you know regions and networks in the left hemisphere, such as the, uh, the left medial prefrontal cortex, the left temporal parietal junction, and the left cingulate. But in order to make moral decisions based on people's intentions, when you're imagining what other people mean to do and what they know, we seem to require use of an area in or around the area mentioned in the last study, the right tempo parietal junction, or RTPJ, and it seems that without it you can't properly imagine other people's intentions and beliefs to make a quick moral judgment. So here's a question then. The right hemisphere seems necessary in making a quick moral judgment in the normal way based on people's intent, but is it sufficient? Could the right hemisphere alone make a judgment? So the authors try to find out with the help of a split-brain patient. They write, quote, here we use non-linguistic morality plays with split-brain patient JW to examine the moral judgments of the disconnected right hemisphere. So obviously you've got a problem if you're trying to just talk to the right hemisphere because the right hemisphere is not going to do super well at understanding a verbal
0: uh, scenario you describe to them right it doesn't want to listen to you tell a story it doesn't want a lot of dialogue it just wants some sweet muted uh, youtube action
1: the silent film hemisphere. Yeah. And again, not to not to be overly simplistic, because we do know from some research that the right brain does seem to understand some language. It's just not nearly as linguistically sophist- sophisticated as the left hemisphere. Um, so they use these nonverbal videos of people trying to help someone and succeeding or failing, or trying to thwart someone and succeeding or failing. So an example might be somebody's trying to get something down off of a high shelf, and yeah. then somebody either like bumps into them to try to knock them off the shelf or tries to help them get the thing down or something like that. And then they had JW watch all these videos and point with the finger of a specific hand, which is controlled by the opposite hemisphere to indicate which character was nicer So in a series of test sessions like this over the course of a year, they found that J.W. was able to make pretty normal intent-based judgments with his right hemisphere alone pointing with his left hand, but had a lot more trouble making intent-based judgments with the left hemisphere, uh, in some cases seeming to respond almost at random with the left hemisphere, and yet the left hemisphere is the hemisphere that, that talks. So there were more signs of the left hemisphere making up ex post facto judgments justifications when it did not understand what the, per, uh, what the person had done. For example, after one video, when asked why he made the choice he did of which character was nicer, JW just offered the rationalization that blondes can't be trusted when one of the actors in the video was blonde. Huh. So here's one question. Why the discrepancy with the last study? In the last study, the left hemisphere defaulted more often to making moral judgments based on, uh, remember, the objective good or bad outcomes rather than people's intentions. Why did it seem to make judgments at random this time? So the authors say maybe in the previous study, it's because subjects were explicitly asked to judge whether a behavior was morally acceptable or not. And in this study, instead, the subject was just asked, who's nicer, maybe to the left hemisphere, you know, separated and on its own devices, maybe it doesn't use any kind of moral reasoning to judge who is nicer but uses some other kind of rubric. Maybe nicer means something non-moral to it. Uh, Then again— there's also the possibility, well, you know, we're again limited to small sample sizes, in this case very small of just one patient. So it's possible that maybe JW is just unusual. That's always a thing to consider with this kind of study, and it's, what well, you know, unfortunately what what this sort of research is by nature limited to. One of the things that I think is interesting in looking at this research we, we've looked at today with the uh, the, the different kinds of uh, moral reasoning in the different hemispheres is that we see again the role of something that we talked about in, in part one of this series back in the first episode about the role of what's thought of as the interpreter, or at least in Michael Gazzaniga's theory, the, the interpreter in the left hemisphere. So the idea is, of course, that your brain constantly makes up stories to explain why you just did what you did mm-hmm. but split brain research indicates that we have no guarantee that the stories we give to explain our own behaviors have any explanatory power at all a lot of times it seems more like they are just confabulated post-talk rationalizations that you just came up with something to explain something you did when you really have no idea why you did what you did the brain just pulled it out of its own butt <laughs> if the brain had a butt in the previous experiments, this had to do with stuff like why did you draw this picture, you know, or why did you pick this object out of a drawer with your left hand when you couldn't name that object in speech or anything like that? And people would make up excuses. Now you, you see a similar kind of thing perhaps going on with making moral judgments. And I think that, that there is some research that this is indicative not just of something about split-brain patients but of something larger about this – phenomenon of interpretation in the left hemisphere and of the human condition itself.
0: Yeah, like we've, we've touched on in this episode and the previous episode and many other episodes before, it's like there's always a story that is told, right? Uh, we're constantly telling a story about ourselves and that story involves rationalizations for our actions and, uh, and interpretations of, of who we are and why we're doing everything we do exactly and it happens it in multiple levels it happens to explain why you ha, why you took certain
1: actions that mm-hmm. you can't actually explain it happens to explain why your mood changes gazanega writes about this there are these cases where you can have somebody who has a mood shift triggered like for example uh, you get you have split brain patients where you show some positive or negative mood triggering stimulus to the right hemisphere and then the speaking part of the brain expresses being upset uh, but then will be unable to express why and we'll just make up a story about why like well because you did this thing that made me upset Hmm. and crucially i think it seems to be the case that when we make up stories like this they're not just you know they're not just outward facing it's not just pr for the brain right it's inward facing we are convincing ourselves that this made-up story is correct
0: yeah it, it, it helps create like the internal reality that we cling to
1: yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's interesting, I think, to notice that this appears to be linked to the brain's capacity for language, mm-hmm. that at least according to Gazzaniga's theory here, if he's correct, the part of the brain that makes up explanations for why something happened is also highly associated with the part of the brain that is able to talk about things, and that very well might not be an accident it seems possible there's a link between the networks of the brain that have the most to do with generating conscious experience and the networks of the brain that are able to put things into words. And that's fascinating. All right. So under, under Gazzaniga's uh, ideas here. The consciousness-generating capacity is located primarily in the left hemisphere, and what happens when you have a split-brain patient is you essentially cut off the conscious part of the brain's access to half of what the brain is doing. Right, yeah though that half of the brain is still over there
0: doing stuff. Yeah, with with each example that we 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 pull out here, each uh, uh each study, it it is still very difficult to really grasp, you know. It's it's again this kind of you can't see the forest for the trees situation. It it's hard to imagine the consciousness we're experiencing. Uh in, in a in a system that 's been divided you know
1: well yeah that 's one thing that that 's so interesting here. I think one way you could misunderstand mm-hmm. what the split brain cases show is that if you cut the brain in half, you generate two conscious, independent people.
0: Right. And that appears to not be the case. Right. People you don't, still you don't experience... get the man with two brains like with Steve Martin.
1: Right. You get one conscious experience. The person generally does not report feeling any different, as mm-hmm. we talked about last time. Their behavior and stuff is generally about the same as it was before, except you have the ability to show under certain conditions that there's this whole half of the brain over there doing things that you cannot be conscious of or put into words so it can still sense it can still control the body it's just apparently not integrating or synthesizing into whatever creates your conscious experience which i mean in a way that is that that is sort of like having the other fellow in there in the yeah. words of uh, of robert louis stevenson
0: now to bring up another uh, literary example Uh, We've uh, talked about Peter Watt's book Blindsight on the program before. Uh, I'm sure you remember the character Siri Keaton who loses his brain's left hemisphere to infection and uh, and, and, and as a result, that entire hemisphere is largely or entirely replaced with uh, like a cybernetic implant.
1: Yes, and this creates a lot of the strange psychology of the narrator in that book.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I couldn't help but think of that uh, when we were uh, talking about this. Uh, also, I was reminded of a character in uh, the book uh, Consider Phlebas by uh, Ian M. Banks mm-hmm. uh, who, who has uh, uh, tweaked his brain so that he can engage in unihemispheric sleep. We didn't even get into that in, in this episode. But, of course, this is something that, for instance, dolphins can do. Uh, they can't just go to sleep so they'll put one side of their brain, one hemisphere of the brain to sleep at a time. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that particular book, it was uh, he was probably leaning a little bit into uh, sort of the left brain, right brain uh, myth a bit. But he was discussing how if one side of the human brain is sleeping and then only one side is awake, you are going to have a different expression of that individual.
1: Now, if the Ghazanaga model of consciousness is correct, mm-hmm. uh, that would make me wonder that if a human were capable of unihemispheric sleep, would the human be – conscious while the right brain is sleeping and not conscious while the left brain is sleeping and yet while the left brain is sleeping still awake just not conscious
0: well i guess you'd ultimately and and you'd have to work out exactly how this would work in a human scenario but as long as one side would be awake to alert the other side when full brain uh, uh, alertness was required Mm -hmm. you know that would uh, that would be the main prerequisite
1: I just thought to look this up, I, I wish I thought before we came in here, whether there
0: are any lateralization properties of sleepwalking. Mm, oh, that would be good too. Well, we we need to come back and discuss sleepwalking in, in depth mm-hmm. because I'm sure there's a whole episode just right there. We, we've done some episodes on what uh, parasomnia in the past, like mm-hmm. sort of covering various weird sleep phenomena. Uh, but uh, yeah, that would be a fun one to come back to for sure. You know, speaking of Peter Watts, I remember he's written about this idea
1: of if thoughts were inserted into your brain from the outside, would you even perceive them as alien or would you just perceive them as self? Because Gazaniga's left brain interpreter model might be totally wrong, of course, but let's just assume for a minute that it's correct. Things happen unconsciously in modules all throughout the brain and then regions in the left hemisphere have the job of synthesizing all that activity and generating a story that explains to you why your brain just did something and this interpreter function is somehow crucial to what we think of as the human experience of consciousness. Consciousness is sort of is this story we tell about why we're doing things and who we are. Now, normally, if something enters your left visual field, goes to the right hemisphere, gets processed there, and then travels to the interpreter in the left hemisphere through the corpus callosum, that doesn't feel like you're getting that thought or information or experience from somewhere else. It's all just self. It all just gets interpreted, and it's you. So if we were to start using some kind of brain-to-brain interface or a computer-to-brain interface where it were possible to transmit thoughts into the brain from outside, and who knows if that's really possible, of course, but just assume. Would we be able to tell the externally inserted thoughts, the sort of incoming brain mail, from activity arising in networks and modules natively throughout the brain itself? Or would it just all go to the interpreter the same way? So you could send an alien thought into somebody's head and have them immediately rationalize it as part of the interpreted self, the same way they would if it came from some network in the right hemisphere. Would
0: they just think, yep, this is just me thinking? I feel like we're 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 borderline there with uh, certain individuals and their use of smartphones. Oh yeah, you know, where uh, yeah. I, I, I imagine you and uh, listeners out there, you've had this similar experience where you'll be in a conversation with someone, and they'll whip out a phone to remember something. Mm-hmm. But 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 often, like not in a way where it's like, oh yeah, I forget that. Let me research it. More like, let me access this part of my memory.
1: Yes, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I. Um I, I don't know. I mean, I wonder what the process is by which the interpreter function. Again, just assuming this model of the interpreter and the conscious experience is correct. I mean, this, you know, th- this might be mistaken. But mm-hmm. if this is correct, what is the rubric it uses to decide what gets integrated as self and what uh, what does it
0: decide is alien? That's a great question. We'll have to come back to that in the future. Maybe there is none. Maybe it's all self. <laughs> maybe there's no future. Oh, there's maybe there's no self. Yes. Uh, well, you know, it also brings up the, the, the question, you know, are we limited – is our ident- identity limited by the things that we have at our disposal in our mind? Mm-hmm. Do you count the things that we, we have to depend upon, uh, that we have externalized? You know, And I, f- I feel like that is part of the modern human experience. It yeah. has been part of the human experience for a while. I mean if an author writes, say, um, uh, 30 books – uh, and that author cannot repeat them from memory, they are not a part of his his or her mind, uh, then, uh, you know, how do you weigh that into the equation of self? Yeah, exactly. And what if you didn't
1: write them? What if these are just books that you uh, have incorporated into your thinking about things? Are those now a part of your brain? If you know that you could consult them in order to figure out what you think about something, but you can't do it without consulting them?
0: Yeah. What if it's a book that you've written and you've forgotten? Uh, I believe uh, Stephen King has a couple of examples of that, right, where he doesn't uh, remember writing a particular novel. I think one
1: example is Cujo. Cujo. He said he didn't remember writing it because he was
0: on drugs. Yeah, so is Cujo a part of Stephen King? Likewise, I mean, we, we all have perhaps uh, books, films, et cetera, some sort of external influence that has been important at one point in our life and then is discarded later And then sometimes pick back up again. Oh, there's an extremely strong
1: social component here. Mm -hmm. Lots of people figure out what they think about something by checking to see what somebody else thinks about it. Right. Whether that's a person you know known to them or some public figure that they you know derive opinions from. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and take a stand. That's not behavior I encourage. (laughs) Do not do not trust another person as much as you trust your own right hemisphere. Don't just directly incorporate their their uh, information as as self. I can agree with that, yes.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, there you have it. We're going to go ahead and cap off these two episodes. Uh, part one, part two, hemisphere left, hemisphere right, if you will. Uh, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to go. Head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show and don't forget about invention at inventionpod.com that is the website for our other show invention which comes out every monday it is it's very much a you know a sister show to stuff to blow your mind it covers uh, a lot of the the sort of topics that we've covered on stuff to blow your mind in the past uh, so it's you know i wouldn't say it's a you know radically different show but it's one that if, if you're a fan of stuff to blow your mind you should subscribe to invention and uh, perhaps you're even the type of person who you're like you know what I like the Invention episodes the the most. Maybe I'll just stick with Invention. That's fine too. Yeah, we basically
1: apply the same kind of mindset we do on the show here to scientific topics and cultural topics. Over there, we tend to apply it more to techno history. Yeah. So if you like what we do here, you'll like what we do there.
0: Go check it out. Subscribe to Invention. And rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do so. That helps us out immensely.
1: Yeah. Oh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other uh, to suggest a topic for the future, Or just to say hello, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, all that stuff. You can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Smash, 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 smash.